Remain standing for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 111. It's printed in your bulletin. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the, work, the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never goes out and returns to you empty. We thank you that it turns our hearts towards you, that it teaches us who we are and who you are. And we pray that that would be so this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last time I was here a few weeks ago, I preached on a psalm, and I'm preaching on a psalm again, and so I thought it might be helpful uh, for us to talk for a minute about why the Psalms. Um, Well, certainly the Psalms are nice, uh, sort of self-contained passages that are easy to apply, and so they're good for uh, non-regular preachers like myself. But more than that, to quote David Pallison, it's because the Psalms are for you now. The Psalms are for you now. In other words, what we have in the Psalms is a very unique collection of poetry uh, that teaches us to orient ourselves towards God in worship in whatever station we find ourselves in. Uh, We are think, feel, do people, right? And the Psalms uh, get at the way we feel. They give us an emotional palette for worship. They are music, of course, and though we don't have the music anymore, uh, we love them in the way that we love music because they pluck at our heartstrings. They resonate with our feelings. In fact... I don't think it's a stretch to say that every emotion that you as a human being can experience is reflected somewhere in the Psalter. And thus God has shown us how to relate to Him in any given circumstance. And through the Psalms, we give words to our experiences, to our deepest emotions and affections, and then we return those things to God uh, in uh, worship. And so the Psalms are for you now. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 111. We're going to ask ourselves, how does this psalm orient us to the one true God? How does it teach us to worship Him rightly? So let's open this up. Verse 1, praise the Lord. In other words, hallelujah. What kind of psalm is this? It's a psalm of praise. In Scripture, praise always begins and ends by looking at God Himself, the one worthy of our praise and worship. So praise the Lord. Of course, we could stop there and God would be uh, justified 
Uh, he shouldn't have to tell us any other reasons to praise Him. Um, because we are His creatures, He is our Creator, we should worship Him implicitly without having to think about it too much. But God loves us enough, enough to walk us uh, through some reasons why. He's willing to teach us. So that's what the rest of Psalm 111 is about. Continuing in verse 1, the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. And so we have a setting. It's a lot like this one. The gathering of God's people like we're doing right now. And so the psalmist begins with I as if to say, follow me. But Psalm 111 is community oriented. It's for the congregation in relation to God. As we'll see moving forward, the subject the psalmist really wants us to key in on is this, the works of the Lord. He's saying, praise the Lord and here's why. In other words, praise the Lord because of what He has done. And so it's the works of the Lord that we're going to flesh out in three parts. First, God's works are great. Second, God's works are gracious. And third, God's works are enduring. So, great, gracious, and enduring. All of this will lead us to one conclusion, that God deserves praise for what He has done for His people. God deserves praise for what He has done for us. So let's look at verses 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. So as we look to orient ourselves towards God, as we uh, reach out for sort of a handrail in our worship to lean on, the psalmist encourages us to think about the great works of God. And this would have meant something different to the original readers of this. God's works don't fall in a heap at once. They unfold over time, of course. An Israelite would have been thinking to himself, the works of the Lord. Okay, he called our father Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and he entered into a covenant with him. He brought our people out of slavery in Egypt by parting the Red Sea. He fought for us to gain our entrance into the promised land. And he would think, if this was a faithful Israelite, he would think, yes, God has done great things for us. But what about us? And what about Trinity Fellowship uh, this morning in 2017? Can we wear this psalm? Does it fit us? Well, the Psalms are for you now, right? So first, what Psalm 111 says is true of God regardless of the time frame involved. Uh, God does not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that idea is even built into this Psalm, as we'll see. But second, in a very real sense, if you are in Christ, then Israel's history is your history. In other words, when you're adopted into the family of God, uh, you... Uh, get, as you come into the family, the family history. In other words, God's people are not two, they are one. There's not Israel and then the church. There's simply the church throughout all generations who have trusted in the same Jesus to save them, no matter how much they knew about Him. But so in the history of redemption, ultimately there is not Israel in the church, but one. And that's what elsewhere Paul says, uh, in Galatians, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, believe in Christ, you inherit this history. So what God did for Israel, He did for you. Creation, fall, exodus, the promised land, 
That story is your story. It's the story of God's church. So the first thing the psalmist gives us as to how we're to view God's works is that they're great. Now our word great uh, is sort of a cheap word, right? We throw that around a lot when we're making lunch plans or when we're talking about uh, a show maybe that we like. Uh, We say things are great a lot. But uh, this word means something different in Scripture. It is a fuller, a heavier word. And so we see in verse 3, God's works are great. And then to say something else, they are full of splendor and majesty. So there's a, a regalness. There's something imposing and noble about the works of God. And so even though the psalmist isn't explicit which works he means, it's clear that he's referring to the big redemptive event in Israel's history. But think of it this way. When the prophet Samuel raised an Ebenezer, which is literally a stone of remembrance, he said, thus far have you brought us, Lord. And so similarly, it's as if the psalmist is leading us through a series of sort of mental Ebenezers, these monuments of God's faithfulness to his people throughout history that we think on and are reminded. So we are reminded that God's works in creation and redemption are truly great, that everything that God does is freighted with his beauty and his goodness and his justice and his power and his splendor. And there in verse 3, his, his righteousness. All of God's works have left his stamp in other words, uh, on us, the stamp of his nature and character. In other words, because God is great, his works are great, and we should praise him as being great. Praise the Lord. But the psalm is for you now, because when we see his greatness, we feel our smallness. Right? When we see his power, we feel our weakness. When we see his righteousness, we feel our sinfulness. And those are good things, actually, to feel and worship. Those are rightly ordered emotions. They're not easy things to feel, but they're true. So it's a sort of holy self-awareness that says, yes, God's works are great, and mine are really not. They just aren't. That's the knowledge of God and of ourselves, and the connection between them that Calvin talks about uh, in the beginning of his famous Institutes. See, compared to God, our works are little, right? They don't change much. Our works are weak. They don't have great courage in them. Our works, even the best of them, are tainted with sin. Remember, for every Israelite who raised his voice in this song, the same was true, right? They were a nation belittled by hundreds of years of the cruelest slavery, and they too felt little and weak and sinful. And that contrast is exactly what makes God's works great. Now think about it. God's works aren't great in relation to Him. They're just normal in in relation to Him. They are great in relation to us and what we do. To little, uh, feeble, sinful people like us. People who yelled at their children this week. Or who made bad financial decisions. Or who wasted their time at work or didn't even crack open their Bible. People have utterly failed at a whole bunch of important things. You did that, but God did this, right? He set an entire redemptive plan in motion, and He worked it patiently and perfectly for thousands of years. He turned back oceans. He conquered nations that looked completely unstoppable. He bore the people that He loved with perfect patience. 
until the timing was just right. Split second, perfect, so that he himself could step down into this world and take on a body and live a perfect life and die for our sins on the cross. Great are the works of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Verse 4, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the, the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. God's works are great. They're full of splendor and majesty. They tower over us in scope and in power and in righteousness. And yet, this is our second point, uh, He is gracious and merciful to us. What does it mean that God's works are gracious and merciful? Well, for one, it means they're personal, right? Um, and this is a difficult idea, I think, for us to grasp in our lives, this collision of the powerful and the personal. But I think sometimes we do. Uh, my wife and I have been watching The Crown, which is uh, a new show on Netflix. Uh, it's about the early years of Queen Elizabeth, and I recommend it. But um, her coronation, if you didn't know this, was the first time that the ceremony had been televised. So up until that point, uh, the, the masses sort of have, had never seen a coronation. Only the very privileged were there to see it. And so in the show, which I assume is reflecting real life, there are sort of two factions. And one faction um, says no. They say this will cheapen the monarchy. Uh, we can't use television because it's sort of a, a base medium. And the other faction says, this includes the queen and her husband, and they eventually went out because they say, no, the people need to feel connected to us. They need to feel like they know us. They need to feel like they're a part of this monarchy. And that is exactly what happened. The people did feel connected. She rose in stature with, <clears throat> with the people because of that. And so it's the personal and powerful colliding. And that is really our God, right? Speaking the names of His people from the throne of the universe and saying, you are mine. The Lord is gracious and merciful. His works are cathedrals of grandeur to be marveled at, but they can narrow all the way down to a pinpoint in our own hearts. Because they're not just what God has done. They're what God has done for you. They're what God has done for me, for us, for His church. God is gracious and merciful to you, in fact. How much so? Well... Look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear Him. Food, right? The infinite, the eternal, unchangeable God gives you sandwiches and coffee and ice cream uh, and whatever you have this morning. I'm not sure. His works are infinitely great, but they are infinitely personal. Eggs, if you're wondering. That's what I have. But it's even better than that. Because wrath can be personal. In fact, God's wrath is personal. God is not just against sin in general. He is against sinners in particular. He's against bad people. And according to Scripture, left to ourselves, that is all of us. Bad people. 
If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ and you're under that kind of wrath, but His works are gracious and merciful. And the most gracious and merciful thing that He has done is to send His own Son to take on one of our bodies, to be with us, to live a perfect life and die on the cross. That is His scale of grace and mercy. That He gives you sandwiches, but He also gives you Jesus, the bread of life. He gives you coffee, but He also gives Jesus the living water. So from the common grace of food to the saving grace of Jesus, God cares for His people perfectly. It's only by faith that you become a part of His people. Become one of them. It's only by faith that you're connected fully to the grace and mercy of God. And that is the same faith that will bring you home someday. Because God's works are also forever. They are eternal. And this is our third point. Verse 9, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Uh, forever is a difficult concept. Uh, it's, it's difficult to know how to understand it, and I like to say this about it. Uh, this is my best advice. When you think about forever, don't think about time. Think about God. Because forever isn't really a function uh, of time. It's a function of God, of the one who fills forever. So think about His character. Think about His grace and mercy in righteousness. But even more specifically, think about Jesus. In verse 9, the psalmist says, He has commanded His covenant forever. But the fruit and the culmination and the end of that covenant is found in Jesus Christ, in His work and in His person. He is the one who consummates the new covenant. He is the one who stands in the presence of the Father on our behalf. When we look at Him, all we want is forever. Right? I mean, I want to spend forever with the meekest and lowliest of all men, but who uh, is the same one who is coming on the clouds of heaven. I want to spend forever with the man who was so tender that children nestled in his arms, but he also made demons cry out in terror. I want to spend forever with the man who never spoke an unkind word, who never failed to love everyone purely and perfectly, but who is coming at the last day to judge in righteousness. God has commanded His covenant forever, and it is Christ who determines what that forever is going to look like for each one of us, for His people, for His church, for the bride, uh, for all who turn to Him by faith. It's clear that we will spend forever with Him doing what the psalm says, praising the Lord, praising Him forever. But we end with the psalmist on a more practical note. Uh, the works of the Lord have eternal significance, but they also have significance here and now. Because verse 10, uh, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you see God for who He is, then you see yourself for who you are. And you have wisdom. You understand how this world is ordered. You have good understanding. By faith, you see your life and your relationships in that perspective. So why is this psalm for you now? Because God's works are great, they are gracious, they are forever, 
And if you believe that, then it throws your own works into a whole new light. Suddenly, by faith, you're not condemned because your works are little, or because they're weak, or because they, they're tainted by sin. In Christ, there's more to it than that. In Christ, the harshest word that you utter this week cannot condemn you. In Christ, the darkest thought that you had this week cannot condemn you. The most backward, ill-begotten, sinful emotion that you felt cannot condemn you. Because God's works are great. And the greatest work He ever did was to hang on the cross to pay for those sins. If you believe that, if you believe that by faith, then you understand that God has commanded His covenant forever. That He has sent redemption to His people through Christ. And because of that, He deserves all praise forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we thank You for Your works. We thank you um, that you engage in an ultimate work that saves us when we could not save ourselves. We thank you for Jesus above uh, all else. We thank you, too, uh, for your, your common grace, uh, your other works, uh, the little things in our lives uh, that you give us. We pray that all of these taken together would point us to you, that they would cause us to praise you, that you will be glorified because of it. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.